the LGBT legislation thing. Well, hello, happy new year. Solid ground has been around for a year now. That's pretty exciting. So we did our first our first live stream on January 2nd of 2023. And now we're pre-recording for January 1st because I'm going to be traveling and we're not we couldn't sync up our calendars. So this is just a couple days ahead of time, but happy new years. And um, gosh, it's been a, a good year, an interesting year. And we don't have Deborah here and we also don't have Jody here. So I wanted to maybe say a little bit about how much I appreciate both of those women and the work that they've been doing. Jody has been amazing in starting this with us and being such a force of getting this going and having so much passion around it. And Deborah really came in and saved us in a big way this year that she's been a part of what's been going on for a long time, but she stepped to the front and started joining us in these streams and started hosting some of the groups and just has been amazing. She's such a hard worker. And I appreciate the two of you very much as well. It's been what what how has it been for you guys? David, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think um it's been it's been lots and lots of fun. It's been at, at times kind of like what on earth are we doing? Um, like we're finding our way as any kind of organization does that starts out. But I just think like the more that we do this, the more it feels like yeah, you know, I've, well, actually, I've been convinced from the start that this is something that's, that's so so needed. Not just the groups, but it, also just the the ability for for people to talk normally. People who don't have, you know, PhDs coming out their bums, just to, like trying to work out from a normal point of view how do we apply the madness that's going on to our lives. And I love talking to you guys so much because I just don't get this anywhere else. I just don't get this um, sense in which we're just collegiately trying to understand and make sense of what's happening in our day-to-day -day lives in the media world all around us and i think like i think that's just really helpful for people to see that that happening we're not necessarily people that know the best words we're not necessarily people who know all those things but we're just trying to honestly articulate our thoughts and um it's really just been great for me and i really really appreciate all of the team and and as well leslie thank you for putting together this for so long and hosting it and keeping us in check to meet up because um we need someone to sort of like rally us around so you've been you've been great at that so thank you thank you yeah I, I think so too I like what you're saying about the honestly grappling with with thoughts and with with experiences from a I, I would say a lay perspective an educated lay perspective instead of yeah, from yeah. this position of expertism or expertise or credential mm -hmm. yeah yeah high level it's i i really appreciate that too mm -hmm. yeah i feel really lucky to be part of this and i love you guys i love everybody you know on the team and i feel i just feel like without these conversations that we have um on the live stream and our recorded sessions and in the groups i, I feel like i would be very isolated and in my own thoughts. And, um, that would feel terrible because when I first started getting concerned about all of the crazy things happening, I didn't have peers to talk to about it. And it felt, um, really lonely 
And I felt like, does anybody else see this? <laughs> you know? Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm just really happy to have found you guys and found such an awesome community and to be participating in building a community. Yeah. That loneliness. I, I felt that too, when I was, especially in the graduate counseling program <sighs> and before I found CTA, which was really a lifeline to me connecting with other people who were seeing this stuff the way that I was seeing it. I just felt like I was going crazy. It was really, I can remember sitting in my bedroom with the door closed on the floor, just crying over this oh, paper gosh. that I received back from a teacher and reading all this stuff about my white privilege and stuff. And just, gosh, finding other people who see that the way that who, who can validate your perspective on what's going on whether you completely agree about everything or not, it doesn't really matter. It's just that we have a shared language and a shared way of understanding that these experiences don't feel right to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess we didn't do the intro to solid ground, but should, should we go <laughs> ahead and do that? Does if for anybody yes, who doesn't David. know who we are? Well, it's funny you ask. Uh, Solid Ground is a peer support community for anyone concerned about the imposition of critical social justice, aka woke, or CSJ, CSJ, aka woke, and or COVID mandates in their workplace, university, children's school, or community. We offer weekly online peer support groups in which members share ideas, thoughts, and support for how to navigate the impact of these ideologies and to answer the question where do we go from here? You can join one of our groups for only $5 per month. And to find out how to join our community, please visit solidgroundsupport.com. And please note Solid Ground does not provide psychotherapy or legal <laughs> advice. And nothing we do should be construed as such. Does anyone else want to chip in? Any sort of uh, very friends? <laughs> I think Elliot has a. Elliot little... will comment. What does Elliot think of Solid Ground? Elliot, how have you found this year? <laughs> <laughs> as if on cue. <laughs> so uh we wanted to we talked about last week doing some viewer comments and going back through some of the things that people have said or asked over this last year and maybe also doing some reflections on what our experiences have been around this but david also you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation last week some legislative change i think that's been going on in the uk and we we kind of bookmarked that and then we never got back to it. So I, I know a lot of people were curious about that and wanted to hear more. And I'd love to hear more if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, thanks, Lizzie. I, it was something I just wanted to mention briefly, just as it's a kind of an update. It's a UK related update, but um, it was meaningful in the sense that it was some guidance put out by the government, which was basically saying that teachers should inform parents if their child wished to change their gender identity at school, um, which is a, is a fantastic um, update, I think, to make sure that there's some clarity on that. Um, it, it also seems to stress there's, there's something interesting in the language that says that it, we should take a very cautious approach if pupils do want to use a new name, pronouns or uniform. Um, so I think I think what what it's also trying to uh, inf encourage is the idea that there's more to be learned. And it's a bit it's a bit it kind of mirrors a little bit like some of the guidelines, I think, that came out as a result of the Tavistock closing down the gender clinic, which was the idea that 
we're not going to sort of invalidate what's happened, but we are very curious. We're going to want to be curious about building um kind of a system or a community around that individual of people who are curious about why it's why this is happening. Um, and that's that's sort of I think that's kind of built into the guidance as well. And um, Kemi Badenoch, Badenoch, who's a, a, a sort of Tory uh, government politician, I think she's Minister for Women and Equalities. She says it's schools do not have to accept a child's request to socially transition. So this is a term referring to when someone wants to change their name, pronoun or clothing to reflect their gender identity. So what she's actually saying there is uh, teachers don't have to go along with the pronouns that the child has decided to take, which I, I, feel, I think that feels like a really meaningful moment in which actually, no, we don't have to play into this. We don't have to just gender ideology isn't this um sort of god or dogma that we just have to bow down to no questions asked teachers are allowed in their own way to have as individuals the ability to play along or not or maybe to question these things critically so it didn't get um i don't think it got kind of um across the board obviously acceptance although i think it says here that the teaching union the association of school and college leaders welcomed the guidance um Teachers do not have a general duty to allow pupils to socially transition. That's what they said mm. as a result of that. And are urged to use caution, including watchful waiting periods and ensuring parents are fully consulted before any decision is taken. So that's even about social transition, I think, which is great mm. to sort of see everyone's reckoning social recognising social transition may be an up, kind of an upstream event that could happen, you know, mm -hmm. to on later downstream events too. So, you know, like there could be a physical um operations or something that happened later i think i think this is just wonderful in lots of ways but i think also it just makes me think about some of the teachers i know that work at schools and i'm just thinking christ thank god that, that some of this pressure is being taken away from them in some ways the, the the responsibility to play this ideological culture war issue out is not falling on teachers to kind of I don't know what I think was a, a sort of an almost impossible task before of knowing what on earth to do with this sort of thing. So I think that's that's really I think that's a bit positive news really. It's come out of that. Yeah, that's really really encouraging. It sounds like a common sense course correction. Mm -hmm. Like some yeah. of those things don't seem like they should be that they're just so common sense that you should consult parents thoroughly that you don't have to humor this this request from the child, but in light of how we've been seeing this, this happening in schools, it's really refreshing to hear yeah. that. Yeah. It really is refreshing to see it happen in a different direction and not to feel like oh, it's all heading in this direction. And um, yeah, absolutely. I like how you also are highlighting the, the piece about the teachers and the pressure that they must be feeling because it's not as if there's a uniformity of, of ideological alignment among teachers. Many, many are feeling really uncomfortable with the social milieu. And mm -hmm. so this gives them, this gives the, the people who don't want to go along with this stuff a lot more leverage to be able to say, no, I don't agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank God for that, because what a terrible position to put a teacher in. You have to say something that maybe violates your conscience um, at pain of maybe losing your job and your career. Mm -hmm. So I just think, my gosh, that is such an untenable position. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
And I would be really worried if I was a teacher. Well, if I go along with this, you know, we know that for some people, socially transitioning is basically a gateway to medicalization. And so it's not as if there's no harm at all in socially transitioning just because medications and surgery aren't involved in the social aspect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, when we talk about social transition, it's such a, it is a, a, excuse me, it's a psychosocial intervention that has a lot of weight. And think about the years that a kid spends in adolescence or, or late childhood adolescence through late adolescence, you can't get those years back. Even if the thing that you've done is reversible, so to speak, you know, I mean, the, the controversy over whether puberty blockers are reversible or not seems pretty clear. They're, they're not, they, they create changes that you cannot, you can't turn that around and resume as if you were normally developing, but also just on the social end, you will never have the experience of going through your adolescence Mm. in alignment with your biology. If you take that step, if you move towards that. So it's a really significant intervention in a child's life. Yeah. Well, and to be doing that behind a parent's back so that the parents don't have an opportunity to address it with their kid according to their own beliefs and their own values and what they think is right for their kid, I think is just a really um, harmful kind of um, intrusion into family life. It's really saying to the parents, you old fuddy-duddies, the school knows much better than you do. Mm-hmm. You can't be trusted to make decisions for your own child or with your own child. No, we're going to do it. Yeah. It's so condescending and disrespectful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has the whiff, the Soviet Union kind of communism taking kids away from parents. Mm-hmm. State protection, yeah. Um, do you know what? It's also, it's also worth saying on, on the guidance, it also says that... Um, it reaffirms that single sex schools should refuse to refuse to admit pupils of the opposite sex, even if they are questioning their gender. And it does go on to also talk about bathrooms. And it says schools must not allow a child aged 11 years or older to change or wash in front of a child of the opposite sex. So they've covered this. They've covered bathrooms in schools as well. Mm. Um, wow. That is so great. great. I love yeah. hearing that. Mm. I hope that comes around this way. I'm hopeful. I think, you know, sadly, there's going to have to be a lot of lawsuits, a lot of people suffering, a lot of people, you know, really losing themselves um, in this. But, you know, and there will be lawsuits over surgeries and hormones. And I feel really sorry for the people who go through that. Um, But I think that it's so excessive and so unbalanced that I think it will come to light more and more and people will course correct. Mm. Yeah, I hope so. I hope you're right. I think that they will too. I think that we're going to be left with lasting changes though, as a result. Mm. Oh, Oh. (laughs) God. Yeah. Well, that's difficult and it's, it's hard, but there's some hope there, David, thank you for sharing that. And I'm glad that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, do you guys have some comments that stood out to you in live streams past or some viewer engagement that you want to respond to? 
I can start with one real quick. Yeah, uh-huh. my The first one I'm going to, it's just from two hours ago, it looks like. So it's brand new comment that just popped up. Uh, it is on, um, it's not on a solid ground live stream, but it's about a solid ground. And somebody's uh, handle is that's my name. That's my name. Oh, what? 2949 says, are the solid ground Zoom groups during the week a lot like the discussions in this video? And it it was actually a discussion I had with Carrie, uh, Marcel, and Christine Seifen. But what do you guys think? Are the conversations in in our Zoom meetings similar to our live streams? Um... Yeah, I think so. I mean, sometimes we'll actually, if if people in group have just watched the live stream, sometimes we'll actually talk more in depth about what we discuss in the live stream. Um, and a lot of things come up in groups that have happened, um, you know, things in current events, kind of like we do in the live stream. So I, I think there's some similarities. Yeah. And there's there's a similar kind of, at least in my groups, kind of a relaxed vibe with, you know, some joking around and also people expressing, um, you know, genuine feelings about, you know, maybe things that they're worried about concerns that we have. And then also a lot of trying to think things through and piece together what's happening and what's driving all these changes culturally. What do you think, David? I'd agree with everything Jen just said, really. I think, um, Hopefully it should feel fairly similar if it's a kind of taster as to what the groups, what can be expected in the groups. Cause I think it is, I think it's the same, hopefully kind of atmosphere of, of genuine curiosity, but also of support for people wandering into this stuff, perhaps for the first time. I think, I think like, you know, giving a chance, getting a chance for an ostracized person who's kept quiet for so long to actually talk about this stuff. I think we've, we've we've all been people who've um experienced that in our own lives i think so um that yeah the genuine feelings and the genuine experiences and conf- confrontations we've all had with some of this stuff in the real world um affects affects what we talk about and our insights on things and and that's that's what the groups are there for right i think on a fundamental level is to allow people who've been ostracized by this to come and start unpacking things maybe even for the first time um so uh yeah and i think actually like some of the stuff that we've 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 done that has resonated with people as well is talking about some of the things that have happened to us like some of the real life things you know <laughs> street uh what would, i don't know what deborah called it once but it was yeah coming across this stuff in the street almost um, oh, in the wild in the wild yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's it um yeah yeah i would agree i think that they tend to be the groups are tend to be larger, of course, than just the two or three, four of us that are here chatting in the live stream, but the same atmosphere is there. There's um, a, a lot of respect for one another and an opportunity to talk about things that are kind of difficult or feel vulnerable. And and yet we're doing so within a respectful, It like somebody made the joke, who made the joke about it really being a, a safe space? <laughs> and as much as that is... Uh, kind of a phrase that it feels cliched and silly and like this this coddled social justice space it does feel safe in this in the sense that we can talk about a lot of things and we can disagree civilly if we do we 
keep it free of debate. It's not de- for debate, but for, you know, in-depth discussion for sure. And mm-hmm. frequently people express relief at being able to talk about things that are uh, difficult to talk about socially. Mm-hmm. And also gratitude for the ability to express disagreement with each other without a lot of conflict. And so it's, I, I think that that's been, it's been wonderful to see, and it seems like people really enjoy it. So, thank you for that comment. That's my name. That's great comment. Good question. What's, what's another one you guys have? Um, Sophie loves PB. I wonder if that means that she loves peanut butter. I love peanut butter too. Um, Maybe she, she loves said, Pete Jude Buttigieg. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with peanut butter because I like that better. <laughs> uh, she said, I've recently heard that in the end stage of many civilizations of the past, there has been this gender focus and confusion. Interesting and alarming. Thank you so much for this conversation. Um, yeah. And thanks for that comment, Sophie. I, I do know of that in one civilization in um, Camille Paglia talks about that, how um, prior to the collapse of the Roman empire, there was basically an obsession with gender and a confusion around gender. And um, I think it was when I heard, I, I heard Camille Paglia say that in an interview, I, I, maybe it was with Jordan Peterson, I'm not sure. But when I heard that, I was like, oh God, <laughs> like that, is that what we have going on here? Sort of the beginning of the end of Western civilization. And I don't know um, about other civilizations where that has also been a phenomenon. I'm not sure. I don't know if you guys know about that, but I think it's really interesting. It, it, to me, it makes sense because it's like, if you can't even agree on the most foundational things, well, then how do you sustain a civilization? Mm. Mm. Yeah, I was just thinking that as you were saying that, Jen, like what what is it about if that seems to be a common trait of a of a of an empire or a civilization coming to an end, why is it gender that starts to really become one of the first warning signs of that? And is it is it because it's such a fundamental thing? Is it because it's it's sort of playing with the very material reality of our being or something? It's like, you know, mm. if that's like, yeah, if we can start to subvert that, then you know, we are, it's debauched. There's no, there's no rules anymore. It's just chaos or anarchy or something. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating. It sort of points to the theory of the spiral arc of history. You've oh, yeah. probably heard about that. This There's this idea mm-hmm. that we tend to repeat patterns over time. There's, there's this book called The Fourth Turning. I I never finished it. I started it, and I've, I've got I, I I'm a serial book starter, so I have a problem with this. But this was I, I listened to the uh, an interview with one of the authors, and the thought the idea is out there in the zeitgeist. But it's this idea that we have these sort of big, almost epochs of history that share a similar, I guess arc i guess a like a plot arc really and so uh, david you were just telling us about a conversation before we started recording with someone 
who has been moving towards Christianity after being a secular person. And what this, the idea that the person shared with you was that liberalism taken to its, or, or, or secular liberalism taken to mm-hmm. its ultimate conclusion leads to a complete breakdown of morality. Mm-hmm. And so in in their own life, this person is coming back to something with more moral structure and seeing that as an appealing alternative. And I kind of picture this historical recor- uh, like course correction again. I was kind of thinking about like, do, do we just have a tendency to sway in and out of, of mm-hmm. uh, I guess, a moral trajectory from something more loose and unstructured back to something that's a little more tightly structured? And could this gender process be a way that we do that because at our core we are sex beings and so as we break down we could end up breaking down in that manner i'm kind of rambling now so just thoughts well i think what you're referring to though is is a real thing it's a the phenomenon of the progressive loss of boundaries each Mm -hmm. time you violate something it's like you have to go to the next thing until it eventually goes to really core things like what is the sort of like it, it get it starts to get into destroying what actually structures our lives and brings meaning to our lives and like it or not a lot of life and culture and relationships are structured around male and female and what that is and what that means and what happens when the two come together and form a family and what that, you know, how that affects the community. And so I, I do think there's this sort of each time you violate a boundary, it's like, well, okay, where's the next thing? Because it's this idea of constant progress. So I'm a progressive. So what's the next boundary we can defy until you just smash everything. And I think that's where the kind of conservative thought is useful because conservatives seek to preserve things that are of value and to know what's going to happen if you dismantle something before you go ahead and do it. Hmm. Yeah. I've been, I've been uh, listening to some uh, YouTube videos about uh, a philosopher called Al- Albert Camus recently. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I actually posted a little bit about him in the locals group. Um, but he sort of, I'm still getting my head around a bit. He talks about kind of the idea that if we, if we don't really, um, if we just grab for some sort of meaning in life, a kind of already formed paradigm like Christianity, because we are so scared of the void of meaninglessness in life he calls that philosophical suicide this is your command you're kind of you're not allowing yourself to confront the absurdist nature of the universe which is that perhaps there's no meaning but that there is also meaning to be made depending on what you do he basically says you have to be able to hold both things at once you can't lean in a binary of going okay well if there's no meaning in life i have to fall i have to find something some rigid not maybe not rigid, but at least some paradigm like Christianity. Mm-hmm. He says you're doing yourself an injustice there to not be able to look at this absurdist nature of the universe. That there is both no meaning and meaning that you can create. And I still haven't got my head around it, mm-hmm. but I was quite interested by that. And the fact that this guy also 
oh, there's there's a really good video of him versus um, Jean Paul Sartre on the on YouTube. They were both friends at one point, but Jean Paul Sartre really was he was a guy who put politics first above morality. Jean Paul Sartre he was he was kind of a communist in lots of ways, and they really fell out these two despite being kind of good friends to start with. And Albert Camus was more. He was he was much more interested in a pro-humanist lens, which would say that humanity and morals and, and life sustaining practices and, you know, trying to avoid the most suffering is, is something we should strive for. And yet Jean-Paul Sartre's philosophy was that it was a means to an end above everything else. Political political action should be put in place because it's all about a means to an end. And I don't know, I just, it, I found it really useful to, to to watch that video and to listen to it because it made me feel comforted by the fact, a bit like we're saying, that, that 50, 60 years ago, there were the same kind of ideological battles going on then. And that makes me feel good because then I can kind of go, okay, we're just going through one of those strange little ebb and flows of things and hopefully we'll go back hopefully it won't be at the fall of the roman empire or you know the extinction of planet earth <laughs> um hopefully we can come back around so i find comfort in those things um in, in all honesty mm -hmm. that sounds like a really interesting conversation to watch and and mm. i'm not very familiar with that philosopher's work i've heard the name but i'm not really familiar so mm. maybe i'll check that out hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think like the idea that as we as we deconstruct things and push away from boundaries, and you can kind of think about our modern era that we've been in since I don't know, I since the 50s, let's say. Mm. Think about things being in Western culture, at least I'm and I, you know, I'm just I'm not a student of this history. I'm just a person who's living my life in I was born in the late 70s. And so I have a sense of what was before and what my my parents' lives were like versus what was right before and versus what was my life in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. And you can watch the culture push away from this tight traditional structure into a more and more unbounded sort of uh, self-exploratory, expressive uh, deconstructed culture, you know, as mm. we've moved <clears throat> to where we are. And it kind of makes sense that it, as you deconstruct things, you end up deconstructing all the way down to the self Yeah. as you continue. And then that there would be a process of, it's almost like a breathing in and a breathing out. Like you got to, we, we do this and then what comes next? And it's not as if I, and I think that there's this idea that the the end of days or like the destruction of everything is imminent. I think that idea has been present with lots of people over time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why are we to think that this is any different? We're just repeating a cycle. That is comforting to mm -hmm. me as well. Any other comments that you guys want on that one? Or do you want to start a new one? New one. New one. Do you have something, David? <laughs> this one's more one just made me chuckle but you can probably guess around the time that it was posted but it was uh from andrea jones 7023 it says i just want to thank youtube for cancelling benjamin the other week as that's how i found out about this wonderfully excellent channel thank you <laughs> <laughs> uh, see that's sometimes cancellation can be a blessing <laughs> uh, it's like the streisand effect yeah right 
Oh, that's awesome. That's really cute. That is cute. That's great. Do you have another one, Jennifer or David? Um, let's have a quick look. Uh, I have one if you if you don't. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, please. so I actually don't remember which solid ground stream this is from, but but Paul McAuliffe says distancing ourselves from others. Don't you folks think that cell phones are already a huge step in that direction? Although we usually still get together with the few people we're closest to, that in-person time or even talk on phone time is greatly reduced and it's almost non-existent with our more casual contacts. By the way, I refuse to carry a cell phone. Thanks for a, another very entertaining post. And then Jennifer, you responded, yep, I think cell phones have changed our relationships. This is four months ago. I, I screenshotted this the other day, but I forgot to link it to what video it is. But I thought that was an interesting and really relevant and universal <laughs> observation. What do you yeah. think about cell phones and how they've impacted our relationships? Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm, I think that um, I, I know that it's created some distance and lack of presence at times for me in my relationships, because I notice I keep grabbing my phone um, and checking it and maybe if you're having, if you're sitting with somebody and you're chatting and there's a lapse in the conversation, we tend to reach for our phones, but maybe that lapse is important. And maybe if you're just sitting there in that silence, something interesting is going to emerge. And I think that there are times when I'm probably missing that something because I'm like, Oh, all right, well, it's a good time to check my phone. Mm. Um, but then that causes the other person to check their phone. And so then maybe their thought isn't concluded. Um, so I, I think I'm doing that and people that I'm with are doing that. And I, yeah, I think that there's less, um, yeah, less eye contact for sure because of that. And mm -hmm. maybe there's something good about sitting in silence with somebody and, um, I'm not doing that as much, um, with my family and friends. And I think that's, I think that's a loss. Mm. It feels, doesn't it? Like we're doing a bit of a social experiment and we really have no idea at the moment what consequences could be coming our way if we 10, 20 years down the line or even kids that are born and go straight into using phones too early. Um, that what, what, what that could do to people's development, but also, yes, yeah, social interactions, how you get on with people. I mean, how that stuff is going to be affected. I don't think we're going to know this until, you know, 10, 20 years. I don't know. It sounds, it sounds a bit doom and doom and gloom. But I mean, I even I, even from my point of view, like I, I moved I moved into a flat and I was living on my own for the first time in a while, um, not that long ago. And I found because I was on my own, there was there was less of a sort of like, um, I don't know, there was there was just another, not another person there to be doing things with. So I'd be on my phone more. And I was having some really weird sort of dreams that would wake me up in the middle of the night and i think that was partly to do with the fact that my brain was just constantly distracted by phone or you know tablet or laptop or whatever mm. and i wasn't spending any of that time just processing stuff and i think there's a lot to be said for for just 
the, the stuff that's going on maybe in the background, like you say, Jen, like when we're when we're we're bored or when we've got a moment of space or where we can be a bit more mindful about what's going on, we can check in with our bodies a bit more. And if we're not doing that, what kind of havoc could that be playing? I don't know. I just know that I've stopped. I've been, you know, <laughs> looking at how much my iPhone tells me every week that I'm spending on the screen. And I've cut that down an awful lot. And the dreams and these weird sort of freaky weird dreams that I've been having that have been waking up have stopped less. I don't know if they're linked, mm. but I have a hunch that they are. God, that is interesting. And I wonder if my phone use is <laughs> responsible for my very peculiar sleep patterns in part. Mm. Mm. That's interesting what you say about a social experiment. I had this... Um... I, I had this realization when I was studying child development in graduate school um, that the way that we were learning about it was all based on kids being in the school system. Everything was like between these ages, this is the kind of, these are the influences that the, the teachers will have and this and the other kids will have. And it's all, all of the child development information that we were being taught was based on kids going through um, a cohort based group with parents and teachers as authority figures. And these dynamics were, were like this universal of, of child development. This is how we were being taught. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. I raised the question, are, is there data on other kinds of kid, you know, lifestyle in the, in the Western world? Like what about homeschooled children that, is there some baseline right. for kids that's not based on school kids? And the response was, well, oh. not really, not really. This is just, oh my and so I thought, isn't that interesting? Because this is a relatively new way of, of going through childhood and into adulthood. Yeah. And now we've already lost perspective on what it would, what would it even be like not to use these institutional structures? And so similarly, when you talk about the cell phone, how cell phones have changed our lives, they're so prevalent mm. in that the, I don't know anybody who like Paul McAuliffe says he doesn't even carry a cell phone. I think that's great. I don't know very many people who could say that most of us have our phone with us all the time. It's just like we're, I was hearing somebody talk about transhumanism and saying, well, I already am kind of transhuman because I'm, I'm attached to my cell phone. I couldn't live without it. Right. And, and so how long before what it's like to live without that is gone from our memories. And this is just the normal way that people develop. And when you talk about human development, there's a, you know, how the phone is playing into that as part of your developmental process. Oof, I find that a bit scary. It's strange. Yeah. Yeah, it is strange. And I had not thought about that, about the school experience and somebody's developmental stages being viewed through that lens. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, any other comments that you guys have queued up? There was a comment you mentioned institutions actually, uh, Leslie, and there was a there was the tin fall hat um, episode that we did, and someone did an analogy for institutions. It was a uh, batty girl Rachel, um, and she says that the thing re institutions reminded me of a local restaurant. 
It had good food and was clean for a long time, but then things started slipping and the food wasn't as good and it wasn't as clean. You could tell by the parking lot and seeing a number of cars. The restaurant then started getting better and customers started to come back. It eventually closed after things started turning downward again. Our institutions are a lot like that. The main problem we have is that many of our institutions are one-offs and have a monopoly on the, on the market. Um, here we go. Has a monopoly on the market. So customers don't have much choice on where to get um yeah. where to get info. The town had several restaurants, so when that particular one started going bad, people had a choice to go elsewhere, which then prompted it to clean itself up. And our institutions don't really get that feedback to know that they aren't really serving the community in the, the way they should. And I think that's a really interesting point about the monopoly of institutions. And the fact that they're not really providing what they need to, but there isn't some feedback mechanism that's really working here. Um, I'm going to hasten to say, say something like a free market on these things, but maybe that is what we need. I don't know. Um, what do you guys think? Yeah, as you were speaking, I thought that what you were doing was basically illustrating the importance of competition. When you go to New York City, the food is fantastic. And in part, it's due to competition because if there are 10 different Indian restaurants on that street, you better not suck because even if somebody just really, really wants Indian food, they've got a lot of choices and they're going to go where it's really delicious and a nice environment. Mm -hmm. And I think we, yeah, we could use, we could use more of that in, in other areas. I mean, if you're unhappy with your public school, you're pretty much screwed, especially now, because even the, you know, private schools and the charter schools that you might take your kids to have also been, um, you know, fully captured by ideology. And so, um, there, there is a real lack of choice in educational institutions right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really that's a really good point. And it's really interesting to contemplate this. Um, when you talk about free market, that was what came up for me when you, when you were describing that or reading that mm. vignette or that comment, um, the power of having alternatives and the pressure that that places on a, a service provider of any kind, like even even within the family. So you can see this going in good directions or bad directions. What we were talking about earlier about the school um, taking over some of the aspects of parenting and taking mm. those away from the family. You can mm. imagine how that puts pressure on the parents to then, and, and, I, and I would say that this creates dysfunction, but the parent then has to cater to the child differently. So if you have an institution that is pressured from outside, then they have to really care about the people that they're supposed to serve and they have to listen to what they want. So I guess there, there's sort of a, you might have a dividing line on this with regard to, in terms of people who prefer a more heavy handed state versus people who prefer something that's more, a lighter touch with government. So mm. people who are real statists and want to see more authority vested in the government in a more paternalistic sort of scheme would not want to have a lot of institutional alternatives versus people who are very free market thinking, mm. almost anarcho-capitalists would want 
total alternatives, all alternatives available and little centralized power. Even in this sort of example of, of, of having more power, say, um, given to the, the government to make decisions about how schools are run and what, you know, what things are taught in schools, wouldn't, wouldn't you still, I mean, how much, how much control, how much um, input have, have, say, the government in, in America been, how much have they been influenced by what parents really want and how much have they just taken ideology and started, you know, how much of how much has theology started just rooting itself into the into the institutions without any without any input from the parents at all? It just feels like even in that model, you'd you'd want there to feel you want the parents to feel like, yeah, we've got some sort of say of what happens. All I can see is that parents are being shut out. I mean, obviously it's a nice thing to sort of have read that policy change in the UK earlier, but the general pattern has been shutting parents out. So you, there's no free market and then there's no way in. And it just feels like a completely closed loop, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Um yeah. Yeah, very much. Very much. Um the different the different the different viewpoints on, on, on schools in general. I know I had a really good episode where you talked a bit about homeschooling and and that, that feeling like that should be something that was is taken up more. Is that still is that still your feeling is is that maybe that's what's gonna happen next? Maybe that's what's around the corner, is that more homeschooling might might continue to be an option for a lot of people who don't know what's going on. Yeah, I think that more people are are moving towards homeschooling. I think that for a number of reasons, because one, I think that there has been a shift in how much parents feel disenfranchised from the process of um connecting to their children's education that's become more heavy-handed on the part of the schools like really blatantly shutting parents out and doing things mm. like changing their kids gender without notifying the parents. so these kind of big things come out but also um covid i think shocked a lot of people and i think it, it did two things one the kids were turned out of the schools and set on tablets or computers for their classes and I thought I, there were a lot of parents who, you know, we've been talking about the dangers of too much screen time for a long time. And now we're watching this just be the norm for our kids. And, um, and, and also people who were forced to stay home with their kids while their kids were out of school learned that actually maybe this isn't so hard and maybe I can make accommodations to make this work. So I think for a number of reasons, people have moved towards homeschooling. But what I expect, what I would predict is to see a uh, tightening down and a greater degree of restriction on the ability to homeschool. I, I think that there's going right. to be a pushback. I think we're going to have to um, really fight for our right to do that as schools realize how much funding and how many people have fled. So I think that that's going to be a problem, but hopefully it'll also provide some counter pressure on educational institutions to do kind of what you're seeing in the UK there. But that would just be my prediction. It's almost like you have to generate some market pressure from somewhere. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think it does. I think it does. I think it's illegal to homeschool your children in Germany. Mm -hmm. That's what I've heard. Which is just so 
oh God, like the state owns your kids. I just find that really ghastly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a lot of anti-homeschooling sentiment out there. You know, you have mm-hmm. sort of this idea that homeschooled kids are awkward or have missed out on socialization. It's not true. No, not necessarily. Not any more than you could find that within the school system. Well. There's plenty <laughs> of kids that are ever? bullied and traumatized by school. Absolutely. And the schools are notoriously bad at knowing how to handle those things. And there's kids that are bullied in school for years and the school completely fails them. And they're so they're worse than socially isolated. They're being harassed on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I have a, another viewer comment that ties into this that I was uh, thinking about reading. And so um, it's Andrew Bissell, 7363 says, this was about four months ago. I don't know which uh, YouTube, which of our streams this was for, but he says, thanks for all you do. I've got a question. Is there any good concise resource for a response to answering those who take the, they're not actually coming after your kids. This is just a conservative boogeyman alarmism. This isn't actually a thing happening line of defense. Basically what's a good outline to answer these criticisms and push back against the gaslighting. Any thoughts? My first thought was something from James Lindsay, but um, I don't know. I don't know if I've got a resource specific in mind. Mm-hmm. I know it's hard for me because I read so much about this, but I don't keep, you know, a specific list of resources that I can pull out of my out of my mind easily. But oh, um, but I would say that James Lindsay and his new discourses would have definitely some good podcasts about this. And there was also a really good article written by Christopher Rufo called the, um, I think it's called the, I sort of see it in my head, the real story behind drag queen story hour. Mm. See if I can find it. That is excellent. It gives an overview as to why this push to get gender ideology into the schools, why to expose children to it. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a good one. I And so you're talking about kind of going back to source material and people who've really done the work to, to show mm-hmm. how, how these policies came to be. Yeah. And that is what it's called. It's called the real story behind drag queen story hour by Christopher Rufo. That's a really good article that explains the entire phenomenon. Mm. Um, yeah, there's, there's a James Lindsay. I mean, you know, I put James Lindsay children into YouTube and there's a video there, James Lindsay, the goal of drags. This is a five minute video. The goal of drag queen story hour is to separate children from their parents. So he's, mm. he's talked directly about that. Mm, that's great. I his he's got some really good stuff. I like his bullets and and they're really mm-hmm. good. He does tend to get a bit of a reputation though, which makes him dismissible, sort of in the way that a lot of these people who are really vocal end up being uh, aligned with one side, if you will. And I I would say one of my suggestions in response to this question is. I think we really have to stop giving so much, so much power to this political paradigm. Oh, that's just conservative, therefore dismiss it. Right. Oh, that's just liberal, therefore can dismiss it. 
And I think we need to own our thoughts and not allow ourselves to be dismissed on that basis. So if your intuition says this isn't right, and this is undermining my family, uh, my authority as a parent, and I'm not comfortable with these policies, if somebody says that's just a conservative talking point, well, then they've just invalidated their, that's, that's an ad hominem attack. That's just, that's not, yeah, that's not helpful. And I don't have to accept that framework. I don't have mm-hmm. to be dismissed on the basis of what your perception of my political alignment is. Absolutely. That's right. I mean, if, own it. And so, maybe we should start owning it and saying, if, if, if being concerned about this and the protection of children makes me a conservative, then I'll be a fucking conservative then. If the, if the alternative is to, is, is to just go along with this and not question it, then, yeah, I'll make me a conservative. Then I don't. Give a shit. We have to take away. The, you're right. We have to take away the power from that because it's so easy to just undermine and scare people off. Mm-hmm. And maybe us, you know, us liberals. I don't know if you guys can class yourself as a liberal anymore, but like we've been too scared of things like racism, sexism, all oh, the boogeyman, the conservative. We don't want to be lumped in with them. And it's just that's that's. I think that has created some of this chaos. It's just allowing that to happen because people are too scared to be accused mm-hmm. of things. And, um, and maybe we don't even have maybe on some level you just have to kind of go this is nuts like you could have a James Lindsay talking point or you could have you could have watched some of his videos on it and it'd be useful for you to feel more comfortable and confident in what that what you believe has a kind of has a backing it's not just a feeling but we should also maybe we should also s- sort of step into the idea that if this feels wrong then that we should be able to be confident in, in that as well. We don't have to try and turn our gut instincts off because we're scared of being ostracized. We should we should say this feels wrong um, and explore yeah. that as well without having to go to intellectual avenues to back it up, which are useful, but you know what I mean? It shouldn't have to be dependent on that. Right, right. Absolutely. No, people are so afraid now of, I think, people are just living in fear of, oh my God, I'll be labeled racist or transphobic or Islamophobic or whatever the heck they're using against people. People are very alert to that because it's a threat, you know, to be separated from your tribe. So that's been leveraged very effectively. Uh, for For more information too about, um, you know, the whole phenomenon of um, trans ideology and what it's doing to kids, um, Abigail and families, Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage is excellent. I don't know if I mispronounced her name, but um, that's a wonderful book. Yeah. Has lots of facts and statistics as well as some um, interesting real life examples. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really enjoyed that book. I don't know if I've told you this story about that book before, but mm. I um, I was reading it and I went to the river with my kids and I dropped the book into the river as I was crossing and a family down the way retrieved it for me and brought it back. And then it, it, it swelled. I mean, it just soaked up this water. <laughs> and then I took it home and I, 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 put weights on it or, you know, something heavy on top of it and like tried to separate the pages so they wouldn't stick together. But now my copy of the book is irreversibly damaged. (laughs) (laughs) That's irony. (laughs) I still, I, it was still readable. So maybe there's a metaphor there. I still read, read it and enjoyed it. So you can, anyway. 
I think we, we probably have time for one more. Do either of you have one that stands out for you that you want to do? I don't. David? Um, do you know, I screenshotted one. It's not, a, it's not much of a talking point, but, but it was after, oh, I can't remember his name. We did a video with a chap who had been in the army before and now he's working in a mental health community hub. And it was just, it was somewhere oh, in America. Oh, yeah. Andrew uh, Didway in, in Portland. Andrew. Yeah. Yeah, really, yeah. I really enjoyed that one. I really enjoyed that one. Um, And hearing his story and just how, how yeah, how things have been pulled apart by like this postmodernist way of thinking. But I think that was quite a heavy episode because I just think that um, there were a few people in the comments just saying, oh, you guys are doing a good job. I hope hang in there, all of you. So I think we must have we must have obviously sort of taken what Andrew's story was and just sort of obviously connected with it. But in a way that people could visibly see um, maybe it had, had, had affected us because, of course, it would do. But someone just said here, maybe you guys could discuss a movie or something next time. I think you all <laughs> I think you all need a diversion from your serious work lives. I thought that was quite sweet. <laughs> oh, that was that's really, really sweet. Um, at home last five oh one. So thanks for that. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe we'll do a movie. Maybe we'll do a movie review one one week. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a porno. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do one or we'll review one. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> we'll we'll make our well. own. <laughs> why not we'll just oh. branch off into porn production um, <laughs> empire totally, is falling so we totally well. on brand yeah there you go <laughs> yeah. oh that's funny yeah i think that these topics are really heavy sometimes it's i mean mm -hmm. we're we're kind of coming together to share thoughts concerns and perspectives on aspects of the culture that we're we're alarmed by and i guess there is something really heavy about that i i think that one of the things that i appreciate about these conversations though is that there's often a thread of humor throughout and we can mm -hmm. find ways to not take take things so terribly seriously mm -hmm. there's this activist mindset that has no humor in it it's like mm -hmm. i'm going to go and fix things and i don't have any kind of I'm not under any kind of illusion that I can go out and fix things. What I can do is have conversations with people. Yeah. Well, and understand yourself and stay true to your own values and don't catch the mind virus. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I feel, I feel grateful that I haven't caught the mind virus. I, I feel really, really lucky. And I, and now that the shock of all of this, you know, everything really blowing up in 2020, after the shock has subsided, I am starting to see more and more of it as very funny. Mm. I mean, because it is so ridiculous. And I do take it seriously because it has been um, really, I think, destroying our culture, but also <laughs> there's a certain amount of such foolishness that it is hilarious sometimes. And so I take pleasure where I find humor in it. Mm -hmm. Albert Camus guy that I mentioned before, he was an absurdist. And I think he was just trying to say that life is absurd and it is absurd and something that we should we should embrace that absurdity in some ways. And I think humor is a massive part of 
I don't know, just overcoming things and realizing that they don't have to have as much power on you as they think. And that actually you can't be a hundred percent sure of everything, but on some level, you're just going to have to embrace that. Mm -hmm. um, and there, you're right, Leslie, there's absolutely no humor in, in some of this stuff. People have become so scared and rig rigidified by things that um, mm -hmm. there's space for humor. And if anything, humor gets shut down, doesn't it? You know? Um, and by the way, did you guys, have you guys seen Ricky Gervais's new um, stand up? Uh, he... Oh, Armageddon. I just started Armageddon. watching it. I haven't watched it all the way through yet. I mean, he, if anyone was under any doubt as to whether or not he was a fan of work stuff, like it's, it's really, really put that one to bed. Oh, <laughs> wow. Off, I look forward to seeing that. He goes off it massively. So if you guys are fancy a little bit of, um, you know, something that's going to kind of connect to the, how absurd some of this stuff is. Um, yeah. Um, he, he does not hold back. Um, oh, that's gonna, awesome. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do some, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty graphic some of the stuff, so I'm not going to do it. But people should go and watch it if they if they're up for a bit of a laugh over this festive period about this stuff. Oh, I love that. Yeah, awesome. He's really funny. He's a great. Um, yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah, I think um, it's true, Jennifer. You say you do take this stuff really seriously, but also enjoy humor where you find it. Mm -hmm. And I. I think that there's something about the there's I keep coming back to this idea of content and process or form and substance. So there's what you're worried about, but there's also how you address it. Mm. And if you kind of see yourself becoming this really serious, um, you know, you, there's a there's a degree of like, when have you crossed over into sort of a counter activism? Mm -hmm. oh i don't like the activists they're all telling me what to do so i'm gonna go tell everybody what to do so they don't do that you know so I at know. some point you've kind of you've kind of gone down the path you think your reason for doing that justifies you using that method but i think that it's i think both have to be taken into account your reason has to be valid but also your method has to be something yeah. that is you know you think is a healthy thing to perpetuate and and that's why i i really see a lot of value in just having open conversations because i think that yeah. at the end of the day we can differ on lots of things but if we can find the way that we connect to another person if we can establish common ground then we've really done a lot and and so much of that is done through just not taking ourselves too seriously exactly yeah. Well, this has been a really nice chat about the, well, just some random things that came up throughout the year. I, I've liked the the easiness of this and just yeah. the, the gentle musings of, you know, contemplating these ideas. Thank you guys for, for doing this together. <laughs> gentle musings. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... <laughs> If I was trying to take myself seriously, I've got Jennifer to help me. <laughs> I, just thought, I just thought of like a, an advertisement for, for a douche. <laughs> Women's vaginal health, gentle music. <laughs> Should I do a different blurb for next time? I could be, uh, it could be uh, gentle musings. It's a wonderful podcast. Um, listen, best listen to next to a waterfall or a, a long running stream. We we'll talk about. Come gently muse. <laughs> could, this be, could this be a title? Gentle, gentle musings um, on New Year's Eve. 
Oh so, yeah. That, maybe yeah. That's, that sounds that I, I'm getting douche commercial vibes, but yes, maybe. I liked it, and I've enjoyed the general meetings as well. It's been lovely, lovely catching up. And yeah, it's been like running through a field of wildflowers with you guys. <laughs> yeah, or like just touching the tops of the weed stalks in the sunlight in the Very golden gently. hour. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, happy new year. And happy new year. David, I don't know if we're going to be seeing you for more of these or if you're going to be back to your course, but hopefully you can pop in from time to time. Yeah. I was thinking I might pop in from time to time if that's okay, if you'll have me. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Anytime. Anytime. Thanks. All right. We'll see you guys later. Happy new year. <laughs> happy new year. <laughs>